Hi, everybody. Good evening. How are you? My name is Lauren Rosati. I'm the assistant curator here at the National Academy. And on behalf of the director, Carmen Brannigan, and the entire staff, I wanted to welcome you here tonight to the special Whitney Biennial edition of the review panel. This event occurs here once a month in the National Academy School uh, and is organized in partnership with artcritical.com. It is generously supported by the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs and the New York State Council on the Arts. And though the topic of conversation tonight turns to the Whitney Museum, I encourage you all to see the exhibitions currently on view in our own museum, including Anders Zorn, Sweden's master painter, Philip Perlstein, Six Paintings, Six Decades, and Edwin Blashfield and the American Renaissance. Um, most of these are on view through May 18th. And there are more information on these exhibitions and related events in a newsletter available at the front desk um, and at the school entrance out the door. Also a reminder that review panels are now hosted free of charge, uh, something made possible by the generosity of our members. So if you like what you hear tonight, please consider becoming a member of the National Academy. Um, and a reminder also to please RSVP for these events that they will begin getting quite full. So please join me in welcoming tonight's guests, as well as moderator, publisher, and editor of artcritical.com, David Cohen. Thank you very much indeed. It's, it's always a pleasure to see uh, a full house braving the elements uh, of our uh, never-ending winter to, to be here for what is, uh, I believe, the fourth occasion on which we've tackled the Whitney Biennial, um, something that uh, shows our, our age, perhaps. We're uh, actually approaching our 10th anniversary, which will fall in October. Um, and um, the biennial is, is a departure from our usual uh, practice of taking on uh, four or five or six current exhibitions. Um, and it's uh, often, uh, you know, um, is, is, uh, is, is worth making that departure from, from the norm because of the opportunity, supposedly, uh, this being the remit of the Whitney, to take the to take the temperature or the pulse or the cholesterol levels. Oh, really? Not, not being heard? That's unusual. Uh, that's unusual, if not for the review panel, certainly for its moderator, uh, for its immoderator. Can I be heard better now? Maybe I'm mumbling because uh, it's not the first lecture I've given this week. Okay, cool. I won't start from the beginning because I didn't say anything much. But, but I was just saying that the Whitney Biennial is a good opportunity to par depart from our normal procedure of looking at a handful of solo exhibitions because the uh, survey of American art uh, purports to be at least an opportunity to take the temperature or pulse or cholesterol levels or whatever it is that you're doing for contemporary American art. Um, but almost as if, as if the Whitney has been organized with the review panel in mind, the organizers this year have generously and conveniently uh, split the uh, exhibition into three parts, uh, one part per curator. And that is something we will kind of, that is, that is something we will adopt as the structure for this evening, just to 
um, make things more familiar to the review panel regular. Do put your hands up, please, if this is the first time you've ever attended the review panel. It's always nice to know that. First time you've been, on the review, uh, been at a review panel. Marvelous to see you all. Welcome. Hope to see you other times, too. So, what I'd like to do now is introduce my guests in the far corner. Donald Cuspit uh, is an art critic, poet, professor emeritus of art history and philosophy at SUNY Stony Brook. Um, he holds doctorates in both those disciplines and has also completed the coursework um, in psychoanalysis at MIU Medical Center. He is uh, the 1983 recipient of the Frank Jewett Martyr Award for Distinction in Art Criticism, awarded by the College Art Association. And he's the author of over two dozen books and countless exhibition catalogues, including Redeeming Art, Critical Reveries from 2000, Idiosyncretic Identities, Artists at the End of the Avant-Garde from uh, 96, The End of Art, 2004, and New Old Masters from 2007. Colleen Asper is an artist and writer. Uh, publications to which she's contributed, including include Lacanian Inc., The Believer, and Paper Monument. She's organized numerous lectures, panels, uh, panel discussions, and performances as part of both Ad Hoc Vox, um, a group of which she's co-founder, and uh, Cooper Union's Interdisciplinary Seminar. She's an open sessions artist at the Drawing Center, where she's currently working on an exhibition as well as related public programming. And like Don Cuspit, Colleen Asper is a veteran of the review panel who we welcome back, as we do, as we welcome for the first time, Joseph R. Wolin, who's an independent critic and curator, frequent contributor to Time Out New York since 2006. He was the art critic in residence at the Bronx Museum in 2012 to 13. Since 1994, he's curated 26 exhibitions, uh, and his most recent project, Open This End, Contemporary Art from the Collection of Blake Byrne, uh, is set to open at the Nasher Museum at Duke University next year, where the erstwhile uh, curator of contemporary art here at the National Academy, Marshall Price, is probably going to be a receiving curator. Uh, he's an adjunct professor at Parsons, the New School, and the School of the Museum of Fine Arts, Boston. Ladies and gentlemen, a distinguished panel, please welcome them. And obviously in the course of discussion as we come to as, as individual artists and their work come up for um, scrutiny or discussion, you'll, you'll, we'll obviously hear from the panelists a, a modicum of description along with their um, verdicts. So um, uh, don't, don't get nervous if you're feeling that you've lost your bearings. A another survey, and no one's going to hold you to it, um, just uh, I'd love to know, I'd be very, very curious to know, uh, how many of our audience did have had a chance so far to see the Whitney Biennial. Right, okay, good. So we are speaking to an informed audience. 
whether or not we're an informed panel. So, fantastic. Now, as I say, the structure of this evening is tripartite, floor by floor, but um, I'm not here to be uh, an angry policeman if uh, one of my distinguished guests happens to want to mention something on another floor. And I'd like to start, before we get to our floor by floor journey through this event, um, with some initial thoughts about the fact of giving each curator uh, a floor. It's a departure. It's, um, it's, a strange, it's perhaps a strange departure. It would almost suggest that the curators just couldn't get along. Or, or is it, no, from the outset, it was the intention of the institution to particularize and personalize um, the, the, the uh, structure. In, in which case, is it, is it placing too great an emphasis on the whim and whimsy of the curators? Is it making too much of the curators to adopt that strategy? Uh, first thoughts on those kinds of topics, Colleen. Um, well, I think it's pretty clear that that was a strategy from the outset of the, the Whitney curators to invite guest curators and to give them each a floor. Sure. Can people hear me now? Um, I was just saying, I, you know, I, I, I don't think the Whitney would lie about its, um, you know, its um, idea from the outset to invite in three separate curators and to each give them a floor. So I didn't read any um, whatever drama between curators in that. Um, and I don't have any issues with the, the premise. I think it's um, refreshing that the Whitney tried something that they hadn't tried before. Um, that said, the three floors uh, varied wildly for me in terms of how successful they were as exhibitions, and that's something I'm, you know, presumably we'll get into momentarily. But I think the, the basic premise is a good one to experiment with how it's curated. Uh, Joseph, would you agree with that? I would actually argue that overall the show reads as a single entity. I think the differences between the floors are fairly minor, and I think the show does read completely as a regular Whitney Biennial. Um, I think knowing that as three separate curators uh, for three separate floors, you can go back and try and find differences in between them. Um, but it's certainly not the first impression that you get. My experience, the first time I saw it, I began on the second floor, moved my way up, and the second time reversed. And both times, what I saw after the third floor, um, Stuart Comer's floor, presented itself as an incredible relief. Right. <laughs> and it, because it I felt so different from the extremely cramped um, curation that happened on that floor. But, but so. what, what would happen with any show uh, organized by any number of curators um, in an institution on three floors is that just the visual and museological sensibility of the organizers would be such that each floor would have a character, would have an identity that you would remember. So in a way, that, that I think would happen even if we didn't, um, if we, if we, even if we weren't looking for the curatorial eye of each individual. Don, did you feel that it, it was primarily uh, a singular event that happened to have three organizers, or did you feel we were given a, tri a, a troika of shows? Let me, let me say several, and please use the mic. Yeah, let, me, let me say several things. First, 
Um, I did uh, think that it was a sort of singular event uh, in that there was a certain consistent attitude, as it were, and the attitude is, I would say, articulated by uh, Alan Capro's idea of post-art, uh, namely uh, that the boundary line uh, between uh, ordinary things, uh, the old Duchampian idea, and art gets blurred, or everyday existence gets blurred. So Capro said uh, one of his last pieces in the University of Barcelona, he had students mop a floor for three days, and then they would discuss it, and the act of mopping the floor was, quote, the work of art. And that takes us right back to uh, Breton's justification of Breton uh, in uh, one of the early pieces he wrote, uh, where if an artist says, uh, that something is a work of art promoted, the exact phrase is promoted to the status of art, uh, and it requires the dignity of art, because in art says the question is what the dignity in these works are, okay? Uh, so that leads me to another point, um, uh, which is related but indirect. Um, this exhibition, uh, two of the people who were curators were uh, are artists, so to my mind that means the exhibition is compromised from the beginning. Uh, because there's an built-in prejudice, as it were, uh, meaning prejudgment. Nothing wrong with that. We all have our prejudices, our presuppositions, if you want, or assumptions of what is significant or not significant. Uh, but these are not clearly spelled out uh, in the uh, statements that were made by the curators, as far as I could see, which were fairly casual. Uh, sort of self-congratulatory uh, statements, as I saw it. Uh, and the key to the problem of this exhibition as I see it, and I mean problem not necessarily in a negative sense, but just the problem is in one of the statements by one of the curators speaks of introducing certain works into a fine art context. I don't see fine art here. Uh, the definition of fine art, if you take it back uh, goes at least to the Renaissance. Uh, you can go to Castiglione Courtier, perhaps more importantly, the third prelude in Vasari's Lives of the uh, Artists, uh, Architects, and Planner. And there's the idea of grace. Uh, that's a difficult concept, but I'm willing to say, argue even that up to Jackson Pollock, there was some grace in art. I don't find much grace here. And uh, I think what you have here is what has been called the anti-aesthetic idea. There's been a whole book on essays on that. And then uh, this is glossed over, as it were, or sugar-coated, I don't know if it's sugar or salty taste, uh, with certain statements by, by uh, artists that uh, justify their work. So you need all this sort of so-called conceptual context or verbal statements by the artist to justify it. Now, I remind you that the word dignity that Breton used is a humanistic concept, okay? And I don't see much art that has, quote, a humanistic resonance, if that's the idea of promoting this uh, to dignity. So this exhibition, in its, in its general principle, has certain problems for me. And a larger problem is this. The Whitney, as I remember it years ago, its mandate was to go around the country, okay, and to survey the art, any art of consequence from wherever in the country. And then it was increased to Latin America. But to present this and give a range of art. This is a rather narrow range of art, even by New York standards of what you can see in New York. And art, you could argue for the consequence or not of it. So this exhibition, to my mind, needs a tremendous justification, whoever the particular curators were, okay, and I know who they are uh, by their statements as well. So to me, the exhibition doesn't belong here. And another problem that I have well, with this. That 
we we all got many problems. So I think as we as we as we, as we uh, yeah, but really. Uh, isn't uh, just as there's a difference between a biennial and any old show, there's a difference between a panel and any old lecture. So we're going to have a conversation among the four of us and see what sort of consensus we can arrive at, Don. And, and we want more and more problems as the evening goes on. So let's hold a few problems back, if you would. Can I actually... But let's, let's reflect on some of the problems you've already brought to us. Uh, Colleen. <laughs> Thank you. Um, as the, the lone artist on a panel of um, presumably critics, I'm going to um, stand up for the artist as something else. Um, I mean, to me, there was a huge distinction between Anthony Elms and Michelle Grabner in their role as artist, as curator. Uh, but one of the things that I was really struck with in Michelle's curation was um, how closely related the works that she chose were to her own work um, in a way that I greatly appreciated. Um, I was actually struck by, um, or I, I remembered something that Michelle said on a, a panel that I had organized a few years ago on this idea of the decentered practice. So an artist who acts as curator or acts as writer. Um, and she said something that for her was really valuable about being an artist who steps outside of the role of artist was that you're accountable in a way that a curator curating isn't or a writer writing isn't because we can measure what you're saying about another artist's work against your own work. And so for me, Michelle's work as an artist was really omnipresent in her curation. Um, and yeah, I mean, she, she was pretty clear about that in her statement as well, that she was interested in highlighting the work of um, female mid-career abstract painters, which is a description of what she herself is, um, that there was a lot of work that had a, a specific relationship to pattern, uh, fabric, ceramics, things that have been historically associated with the domestic, which uh, is something that she's really taken on in her role as curator of the suburban, which for people who aren't familiar with that is a um, called the suburban because it's uh, began as a garage of in her family home in the suburbs that she's, she and her husband started to show work in and sort of has expanded into like a three-part garage. But um, so, yeah, I mean, at least with Michelle, I feel like there was a tremendous amount of accountability in how she wrote about the work in relationship to her own. And also, um, I mean, something she, that she wrote about in the statement, and then I've heard her speak about in other contexts in relationship to the biennial as well, was trying to, as an artist who has had studio visits from uh, you know, former curators for the biennial, to make that process transparent in a way that it, ha it hasn't been made transparent to her. So you know, in small things like announcing to artists that she um, is doing a studio visit with, that yes, this is a studio visit to consider whether or not they'll be a part of the biennial. And, and then letting them know afterwards her decision. Right, that's very nice, but... Just but you've just confirmed my point, that yes, this that's... is really essentially boosterism for her art, for a particular kind of art, and maybe she should have such an exhibition in some gallery, but this is a museum, and of course this raises a larger collection, question of what the purpose of this exhibition is in any case of the Whitney is these days. So basically she's showing a group of artists from a certain point of view that justify herself, and that's very nice. And I'm not talking about any particular artists yet. I haven't even got to that. I'm not interested in that moment. But you've, you've made the point that she's essentially prejudiced in a certain direction. So she's not an open-minded curator surveying, and she doesn't have what curators used to have is some art historical perspective. She's sort of 
provincial, local, current New York perspective. I just want to point out how provincial the whole thing has become conceptually. You notice in some of the language here the words transgression. It's supposed to be de rigueur to be transgressive. It's tedious. I don't know what's transgressive uh, anymore about art, particularly, frankly. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what the idea at all means. Uh, it's a sort of self-congratulatory term. It's a leftover, quote, avant-garde term. And I think, as uh, Theodore Adorno once said, avant-garde is a term used by people who want to still be young. Uh, you know. Uh, so, well, we've so got some people issue. on the panel who maybe are. So, Joseph, c c uh, let, yeah, uh, Joseph, I, uh, I, I'm liking the discussion between uh, Colleen and, and Don because actually uh, it, was, it, was, it was fun to me that uh, Don made an assertion of this is what this is a problem, and Colleen said, "No, I'd like to stand up for the artists." And as, as I think Don rightly says, that, that actually. Um, what Colleen is seeing as a positive, Don is seeing as a negative, and that is that the particularity of one voice. Now, do you, do you feel that an organized, uh, do you feel that a, an event, an institution like the Whitney Biennial should be striving for some kind of objectivity, or do you think it's a, a sound strategy to bring up, to call upon uh, individualists? Um, I think one of the things that Don has pointed out is that we have certain expectations from a Whitney Biennial. Um, on the one hand, we expect it to be a kind of snapshot of the present, and the present across America in an ideal sense. It's obviously not that. Um, we also might expect it to be sort of a coherent uh, exhibition in terms of maybe a theme or maybe a sensibility or a trend. Um, some kind of bellwether as to what's going on in the world. It's obviously not that either. Um, one of the interesting things, or perhaps one of the appalling things about the Whitney's choice of these three curators, is they've given us two white men and one white woman. And that's exactly what we get in the ratio of artists in the show. You know, it's about two-thirds men one-third women, it's almost entirely white. And this is obviously not any sort of snapshot of America or of the art world at the present moment. And I think whether or not the curators are artists or professional curators or whether or not they're advocating for a certain point of view, and I would be extremely dubious of any curator who pretended to be objective, um, you know, I don't think that's the, the really crucial issue here. But you'd rather they were politically correct or that they were, um, like... You know, if we're going to talk about American art right now, African-American artists, for instance, are making incredible contributions. We don't see that in this show. You know, what we see is white people. And for me, that's a serious problem. It's uh, one of the things that makes this show really unsatisfying as far as the context of a Whitney Biennial. I mean, certainly it's never been um, parody in any sense of the word, but this is, I think, the whitest biennial in memory. I, we have I, a Puerto Rican in it, though. Remember that very at the beginning with the little shanty there. 
Well, we have David Yao, we have uh, Terry Adkins. Something from uh, Hawaii as well. I so I don't, wanna, I don't think anyone, on, neither Don nor I, want to say to, to defend it. I, you can be facetious. I'll be earnest and say that uh, I haven't done the, the math. And if that's the impression, uh, then I chastise myself for not having been more sensitive to it. And, but I would notice that I did, would state that I did notice artists who I did know to be of color, such as Adkins and Diao and I'm sure there are others. But uh, um, presumably you've done some research and some, some math and you know that. It's not a, it's not a subjective impression. You, you're pretty, yeah, you're pretty confident. Yeah, I'm not the first person to have noticed this. Yeah, okay. I mean, it was as soon as the list of artists was released, there were several breakdowns, and I can't remember the exact figures now, but in one of them, Donnell Wolford was counted as an African-American artist, and for people who aren't familiar with that work, Donnell Wolford is the, um, the, the kind of fictive avatar for Joe Scanlon, a white male artist. So it's pretty, pretty bleak when you have the, yes. a, a, a fake. People are pretending to be black. How yes. many Jewish artists were there? Well, um, anti-Semitic tone going through this exhibition on the current. It's, if you want to make it an issue, we'll make it an issue. Um, or are you being facetious again? <laughs> um, let's take our let's let's uh, armed armed with these prejudices, these uh, assumptions, and these uh, uh, caveats and problems. Let's begin our ascent up the stairs and uh, just try to reimagine in your mind this. Uh, uh, rather aggravating buzz of uh, Charlemagne Palestine's uh, 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 monitors covered in uh, Mike Kelly-type teddy bears. Um, a very Jewish work of art, I might point out. A very Jewish work of art. Okay. Uh, and now we're on the second floor, and I'm going to bring in the voices of the curators, okay? This is a departure. Uh, actually, it's not a departure. I did it on the very first review panel. I read out... Uh, in October 2004, the press releases for each show we were looking at, and the, almost the entire evening was then spent uh, deconstructing the uh, convention of the press release, and I vowed never to do that again. Uh, but I think on this occasion, the voice of the curator is a useful one to have. Uh, so Anthony Elms on the second floor, um, he's designated as green by the, uh, um, by the Whitney, who obviously had some sensitivity on the subject of color. Um, if the Whitney Biennial is a snapshot of American art at this moment, and if any intimate encounter with American art at this moment must be mediated, as all intimacies these days are, then Marcel Breuer's museum building here at 945 Madison Avenue is a well-disposed mediation for capturing 24 scenes of America. In assembling the artists and groups, I try to answer a question of Breuer's from his notes on the building. What should a museum look like, a museum in Manhattan? I look to answer Breuer's question with 24 artists and groups that fit a statement by poet Susan Howe. I believed in an American aesthetic of uncertainty that could represent beauty in syllables so scarce and rushed they would appear to expand though they lay half-smothered in local history, end quote. In part because, given the sprawl, assembling an overview of American art these days is a fool's errand. America is constant expansion. And because, to paraphrase a position declared by musician 
Mayo Thompson, I try for timeliness while reserving the right to ask my own dumb questions. After all, it is always preferable to make time rather than to mark time. Uh, that, that's Mr. Elm's uh, guide to, um, to the second floor of the Whitney and, and his, uh, his vision of it. Um, Colleen, you, you spoke of uh, um, how the third floor really, uh, either the second or the fourth floor, would provide relief from the experience of the third floor. But uh, tell, us, tell us, with no relation to the third floor, what your vibe was on the second floor. What, what did you get from Elms and his curation? Um, well, I'm, I'm going to answer that question, but I'm going to disregard the no relationship to the, the third floor, because um, it's hard for me to not think of them in relationship to one another. Um, and the, the sort of, sh my short take on how each of the floors felt is that second floor to me was the sort of most unremarkable in terms of how the curator had assembled works, although there were some individual works that I can speak to that I, I did find remarkable. Um, whereas the third floor felt, you know, incredibly packed, and I'll, I'll reserve more comments for when we're looking at that f uh, floor. And the fourth floor, uh, maybe a similar distribution of works, but they seem much more thoughtfully put together. So for me, the, I mean, the statement that you just read, I don't really know how to connect it to the, the works themselves, with the exception of um, one, which is, um, I think, one of the strongest works in, in the biennial, which is the uh, Zoe Leonard piece, which is actually on the fourth floor, but was part of Anthony Elm's um, curation. So, you know, that piece, which, um, you know, acts as a sort of camera obscura, projecting the, the outside of the, the space into the architecture, feels like a really fitting tribute to the, the last biennial in that building. Um, yes, Zoe Leonard, although she's on a different floor, right. is part of the, is part actually of um, Elm's curation. So she's, she's listed as an other location of the second floor, the other location being the third floor. <laughs> you're not confused, are you? Right. So even though, you might, even though you're on the third floor, you're in the second floor. Correct. Yes. Right. Um, or fourth floor. Right. Or, yeah, uh, fourth floor, I mean. Yes. Oops. OK. Um, I'm confused as to why Quigley is not listed on the second floor, because that's where he was, wasn't he? Uh, the the um, Gregory Badcock, Bad, Batcock installation was on the second floor, right? Yes. And that's it's the Gridgley. Oh, Gridgley, not Quigley. Okay, yeah. there he is. Sorry, bit of dyslexia. Um, I I'm surprised by what you say, Colleen, as, as to as regards the um, memory or organisation of the floor. Maybe the vibe wasn't as distinct as the third or fourth, but I I felt that um, there were some definite strong themes running through. Uh, the the second through Anthony Elm's curation. I liked his curation much more than I like his statement, um, uh, but I do like the Susan Howe quote. But uh, for instance, the Gregory Badcock that Badcock material I found rather moving, and uh, and then was picked up a real vibe when I saw the room which had um, which was a tribute to Malachy. Um, the recording engineer who took his own life as a protest against the war in Iraq and, and who'd been um, a great chronicler of the um, 
free improvisation scene in Chicago. Um, and so that and, and Paul, uh, uh, Paul P, who's always sort of elegiac and his heart's always in the past somewhere, uh, usually in the sort of fin de siècle, symbolist period. Um, I was picking up a definite vibe with these, those three as my pointers of a kind of nostalgia for and lament for um, the energies of the avant-garde as chronicled by somebody for one reason or another, often to do with queerness, sort of marginalized within um, that scene. Uh, Batcock, sort of murdered in Puerto Rico. Um, uh, so there's Batcock assembling, striving to make sense of the avant-garde in his time. There's Malachy recording this free improvisation stuff that otherwise would just be lost, etc. And that gave an elegiac quality and a, and a kind of, I thought, a pace, a gravitas, maybe even a grace to the uh, installation of the floor. That was my thought on that floor. But Don, can you not... Can you not see this second floor is feeling kind I of different? What, what you're saying, and, and I would agree with you, but my approach was different. Um, I sort of forgot the individual curators and attended to particular works. And I found uh, just 11 works that uh, I felt were worth uh, a little more of my attention. And I found myself focusing on the photography more than anything else, although I did admire uh, Miss Humphrey's painting as well for a different kind of uh, reason. Uh, but uh, I found uh, one ceramic work and one uh, painting. The rest were photographs or some variation of photographs. And I'm perfectly ready to give you the names. The rest of it uh, was in this, what I broadly call uh, following Mr. Capro post-art, which I think is uh, dominant, uh, which you might call glorified tchotchke art if you want. Uh, uh, but uh, I, I'm not interested. You'd rather not? Well, some of it was. No, I mean, all those late Mike Kelly retreads and so forth. But anyway, I'll tell you the pieces that interested me because they had a sort of uh, sobering, uh, shall I, shall I call it? Except for floor 11, could you at least like, uh, find let, a couple on the second floor? That would really be Well, I don't generous. know the floors. I have only the names of the artists. All right. I, I, the floors all get... I'll tell you, what, you, you, you you give us a name, and I'll tell you whether to hang on or All give it right. to us now. Uh, okay. Sarah Charlesworth. Uh, nope. Try again. Try All again. All right. Uh, Bay. Nope. No. Stephen Behrens. Nope. You're going to hit bingo soon. How about the ceramic guy, uh, Kusaba Kusakawa? He's on the fourth floor. The I'm fourth afraid. floor. Okay. Jacqueline Humphreys. Fourth, fourth floor. floor, you see? You're well, a we're floor staying man. by floors. I'm, I'm interested in works of art, not floors. That's why you like this artist who I you do said like, shouldn't have curated. That's I do it. like Sterling Ruby. I thought ah. that was interesting. Fourth floor. Fourth yeah, floor. I thought yeah. I like somebody who makes good of everything he destroyed, sort of making the things that he didn't like good. And I happen to be very fond of ceramics for a variety of reasons. I admired Sheila Hicks' work very much. Uh, yeah. Oh, sorry. You're higher than I am. You want to stay on the second floor. But, but I'm, see, I'm on the fourth floor, I guess. Um, I was very interested in the uh, installation uh, of the painting uh, Triple Canopy. I thought that was quite interesting. Third floor. Third floor. Uh, Dani Yo. Hologram. Uh, D A N H, and then Y O is the last name. Uh, yeah, yeah. Don Yo, Yo, 
Fo, is that how it's pronounced? It's a V. V, oh yes, that's what I have it here. It's my, my eyeglasses need adjusting, but that's the critic's problem in general. Miljan um, Ruggetto, photograph, and then Paul P's drawings, I thought oh, were quite- Oh, Paul P, bingo. bingo. Paul, P is, Paul P is on the second floor. Good I knew girl. you were gonna get there, Don. I, I had confidence in you, I had faith. Sometimes one wins the game. So yes, yes, yes. but, but you, yeah, if you, if you come up with the last one, you get a bonus. So, okay. and the bonus is to tell us, to describe Paul P's work and tell us- was To it, describe Paul P's work. Was it, was it work. The, 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 the table or the, or the, or the watercolors? Uh, it was the watercolors, there was a semi, oh, I don't know, I just thought it was, uh, uh, how shall I say, I like, look at my notes here, I like the imagery, I like the sense of the hand that right. was there. Okay, so there was some grace there. Yes, I don't know if I go that far, but. Okay, uh, all right. <laughs> Not quite grace, but something. Um, what, did, what, did, what do you make of Paul P, um, Joseph? What's your um, take on Paul P? Paul P is one of my favorite artists. I felt that in this context, and I think there's several examples throughout the show, and particularly on the second floor, it was a case of right artist, wrong work. Um, I think Paul P's... Uh, most exciting contribution is as a painter, you know, oil paint, color, and I urge everybody to go see his show, which is up concurrently at a gallery called Broadway 1602. And I felt that the work that was chosen for the biennial was a little bit on the dry side, um, not really fully, fully expressing that kind of swooning nostalgia for the fin de siècle or the kind, of, um, the kind of sensual emotionalism that he's able to bring to oil painting. Yeah, he's, he's somebody who's, uh, I always think of something in the same club as uh, Karen Kalimnik on the one hand, Duncan Hanna on the other, uh, but with a little more jouissance maybe than either of them. Um, and so yes, I, I, I concur, although the, the uh, writing table was a, a genuinely very, uh, Intriguing, curious departure. Um, any thoughts on Paul P, Colleen? Um, I guess I would agree that he's an artist whose work has interested me for some time, but I don't feel that that was his, was his strongest work. Um, even on that very floor, I would say the same of Charlene Van Heil, who I think is an amazing painter, but one of the reasons I think she's an amazing painter is how she plays with color in form. And she and was, paint. yeah, and paint, and the painting part of paint. Um, and, uh, she was represented by a series of uh, black and white uh, works on paper, which were, gr you know, they were great, but there's a, a I think ton the of work third by example, her, I imagine. The third example of right artist, wrong work was the Alan Sekula selection. Yeah. Well, even the Amy Silman you could throw in, in that. It seemed to be that um, uh, even on, on the painting floor, when we have a, uh, an exemplary painter, there's sort of an apology for it being painting by then not being painting or something. It's, it's uh, the, some, some odd things going on on that, but, but I'm being naughty, I'm going to the fourth floor. So, um, I actually think we are ready to take a look at the third floor. So let's get back to, here we are, we're on the third floor. And while it's going round, I'll read it to you, uh, what Stuart Co uh, Comer, who's the curator here, uh, has to say. Oh, and the lights turned off, okay. 
how to define American in a survey of contemporary American art, especially one with as much history behind it as the Whitney Biennial, don't worry, I can read it, is a question that has often challenged even vexed curators. As an American who has spent much of the last 13 years in the United Kingdom, I've been compelled by artists whose work is as hybrid as the significant global environmental and technological shifts reshaping the United States. The works I have brought together for the biennial reflect this, whether through complex relationships between linguistic and visual forms, the interface of digital technologies with more traditional media, the development of two-dimensional scores, scripts, and patterns into three or even four-dimensional actions and environments, the challenge of binary conventions of gender, or the intricacy of cosmopolitan cross-national identities. Ideas about migration and movement are raised here too, as are those related to a position, uh, geographical or otherwise, at a kind of periphery off the mainland, so to speak. The surfaces and spaces of the gallery respond in kind, playing multiple roles, from white cube to theater to cinema to publishing forum, and sometimes all of these at once. Right, thank you. And a big thank you, by the way, to Andy Wellington, a um, student at Pratt Institute for these masterful videos. He can't be with us this evening, as, as, as cannot many of my students, uh, as they have their open house tonight, uh, alas. Um, Joseph, I'm curious to know, Paul P is one of your favorite painters. Uh, is Keith Myerson one of your second favorite painters? I'm afraid he is, David. He is, yes. I see a certain kinship between uh, Myerson and P, um, or between Keith and Paul. Um, so, ah, just to remind us all, this is the salon-style installation of paintings that um, maybe part of their mastery is to disguise themselves as the sort of paintings you might find in a thrift store. Is that a fair characterization of his uh, uh, aesthetic strategy, uh, Joseph? Uh, it is a fair characterization. I'm not entirely sure how much of it is strategy and how much of it is just the way he paints. Oh, he might just be, you know, right for a thrift store. No, I think even in the selection that's in the Whitney, there's a kind of range of styles going on. Right. Which, it's always hard to tell with his installations of the floor-to-ceiling hang. Mm -hmm. um, it's hard to get a sense of the canvases as individual paintings, but I think even there, there's some which are much more thrift store than others. Mm -hmm. um, at times, he seems to go for a kind of very convincing photorealism. At times, there's kind of loopy abstraction. At times, there is a sort of bad painting aesthetic, which is very reminiscent of thrift store painting in that Jim Shaw sense. Um, and so I find that even though when you see that installation, you might think it's all of a piece, it's really not. Right, right. Uh, the, the sum may be less than, the, the, the total may be less than the sum of its individual parts. Uh, we're talking um, because the, the, the installation is so designed to militate against uh, appreciation of any individual image. Uh, it's, a, it's a sort of collective statement. I think Don would, would give it as a sort of anti-art statement um, about the, the, the nature or status of painting, isn't it, uh, Colleen? Uh, 
Uh, I mean, the anti-art rubric isn't really that useful for me. Um, I, I wasn't particularly a, a fan of those paintings, or I, I guess of that strategy. Um, I wish that the awkwardness was more awkward in the work, and the um, the sort of skillfulness in quotes was more so. To me, there was a kind of um, homogeny that happened both from the hanging, but also from the way that the paintings were put together. That I had the feeling not so much of thrift store, but more like a, you know, maybe like a painting three um, studio had been raided at some school, and right. <laughs> uh, and to me, it was. I mean, it, Although that room or kind of uh, space within the third floor was distinct in its focus on painting of a particular sort, it was um, the the strategy of the kind of exhibition within the exhibition that was really rampant on that floor made it very difficult for me to to kind of engage with specific works. I had um, the feeling that I I. I get anytime I go to an art fair, which I'm just so immediately overwhelmed by the the presence of all these really radically different worlds just pushed in a way that feels arbitrary to me together, um, that it becomes difficult to, to get, engage with specific works. And I found that ironic that I had that reaction to the third floor because Stuart Commer's um, goal, which I believe him to be sincere in, was to try and speak to works that were on the periphery or come up with strategies that weren't so market friendly. And yet it ended up feeling like what I well, I don't think it's my own subjective experience, but what most of us find like the most market-driven context in which we see work an art fair. Yeah. Um, Don, we, we're talking about the, the, the yeah. painter who... Uh, well, the thing that struck me, uh, the thing that struck me as particularly interesting in the statement is that the uh, word art, and let's put it in quotes, which I think we have to do, gets lost uh, in culture. Um, what you have here uh, is uh, what's happening in a lot of uh, academic discourse uh, is what used to be called art history is now being part of cultural history or object history, as it's called also, the study of objects. So the statement talks about shifts in the globe, new technologies, all of that, and the specific objects presented here are, as I can see it, uh, whatever one might argue about their virtues or lack of virtues, uh, are really as uh, signifiers of certain, so to say, current things that are happening out in the world out there. And these works signal that. And that's an issue that seems to me related very much to uh, the post-art issue that uh, Capro brought up as well. So uh, everything about that statement, if I heard it correctly, and I think I remember noting it at the time also when I saw it first, uh, there was no mention of any particular work, any artists, any point of view. The whole idea of art somehow seemed, um, uh, shall we say, supplementary or accidental, or it's almost as though these pieces are anecdotal references to some cultural things as, that are going on globally in our society, etc. That struck me as the most interesting thing, apart from whether this work interested me or that work interested me. Okay, um, thank you. Uh, Colleen, you, you, you mentioned in particular that the third floor rankled you on, on at least two of your uh, visits to the show, such that the second and fourth came as some relief. But uh, we, we sometimes go to art to be distressed, don't we? We look for the anxious object. Um, what, what, was, what was it that really rankled you about this uh, selection? 
or just the way it was presented, perhaps? Oh, oh I think it's more than just the way it was presented. Um, I mean, one, just to pick up on what Joseph began with, of feeling like it was one show, I guess one connection that I would draw between all um, three exhibitions, but was most prevalent by far for me in the, the third floor was the, the kind of archive as the, the form in which the, the work took. Um, and uh, I mean, the archive as a form, just like painting or ceramic or any other form, I think needs rethought. And there were very few instances of presenting the archive that it felt like it was being rethought in some way. I mean, I, Julie Alt, um, I, I guess I'm willing to give a kind of historical pass to because I think of group material as being so um, absolutely influential in asserting that idea of a, an artist practice as a curatorial practice. And I feel like there was a really thoughtful relationship between the works. And I also am a fan of both Martin Wong and David Wanarovich and was happy to see their works. Um, but I was, speaking of Julie Ault, I was thinking about something that um, Doug Ashford, who was part of group material with Julie Ault, an art collective that was longstanding, um, said to me at some point about uh, the, the strategy of group material of using the the um, curating as an, as an art practice, um, which was you know, in its inception about playing with the idea of authorship and trying to problematize the idea of authorship. But towards the end of uh, group material, Julie Ald and Doug Ashford um, both felt that kind of leaving blank in some way the position of the author was too easily allowing the institution to come in and fill that role. And to me, that happened in a lot of works um, at the, the biennial, but particularly works on the third floor, where you end up with um, you know, collectives that I greatly admire, like Semiotext or Triple Canopy, but uh, presented within the context of the biennial, I think they um, you know, become much less political and uh, you know, lose a lot of the, the, the kind of stakes that they have outside of, of the context of the exhibition. Thank you very much. I think it's a good moment, actually, to bring in our audience for some initial response. Um, uh, I would entreat you to hold back till later if there's anything in detail you have to say about um, Michelle Grabner's fourth floor. Um, but uh, I'll, I'll mostly in response to the um, discussion that's happened so far and to the positions that uh, our panelists have begun to establish. Um, uh, would be very much welcome what you have to say and uh, not to put any pressure on them to have an interesting opinion although or to express an interesting opinion because I know they have interesting opinions uh, just to politely acknowledge that uh, it's always it's always very um, it's always very gratifying or, or flattering uh, to the review panel to see former uh, panelists come along and enjoy an evening uh, in the audience so just to uh, uh, a mention, a welcome, uh, a hello, a shout out to uh, Robert Morgan, Walter Robinson, Alison Anderson Spivey, um, Becky Brown, and Jennifer Riley. But uh, I expect brilliant thoughts from everybody. So, um, yes, gentlemen at the back, please wait for the mic uh, if you would. You can't. Please wait for the mic if you could. We're recording it. Um, and so. Thank you. Uh, just a question, of the three floors, which artist 
do you think has a history, has the potential of being a continuation as opposed to a one night stand? A continuation of what? Uh, uh, that he or she would have the potential or you see the possibility of it, his or her work being significant continually. Well, one of the things about this biennial is it seems to have also been skewed towards older artists. So there's plenty of people in the show who already have lengthy careers, um, many of whom are dead and are in the history books. So I'm not, I'm not quite sure what the question is. Yeah, it's not the Bruce Daniel. I mean, I can't hear you. Uh, I'm just curious in regards to the wonderful show uh, that was done at or, or, a reprise of uh, the uh, Armory show that was done recently uh, at the New Museum. York Historical Society. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it was amazing for me, having not been able to go to the original show, to walk into that show and having it so strong of who and what those people were. So are you asking who will remember in 100 years? Well, uh, we, 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 we won't uh, remember anything. <laughs> that's a very fair question, but I, I feel in a way it, it is the, the, the question of the entire evening. We're asking the panel to say, uh, uh, Don has already given us 11 names um, of, of people that uh, uh, Joe has already told us that Paul P is one of his favorite artists, and presumably that's not because he's of a one-night stand, but hopefully for a long relationship uh, favorite kind of artist. So. Um, not to not to dismiss your question, just to say it's the question. It's the question of any review panel. Uh, what's significant? What does it mean? What's going to last? What do we care about, and why? So, but thanks for reminding us that that's definitely our task here this evening. Any other comments? Uh, um, I just what? want to answer that uh, yeah. a little bit. I think that's an extremely important question, and the word there is significance. That's the key key word. And when you look at the 1912 show, the Armory show. Uh, I think one way of looking at it is in terms of what is called reception aesthetic, and hence uh, uh, Yaus's theory that there's always some objective horizon of expectations. This is his own idea which a work is received in. Okay, so at that moment in 1912, those pieces, uh, so to say, did not meet, quote, the horizon of expectations, at least in New York. Okay, uh, and even in Europe at that time, it was uh, new, avant-garde, different, uh, rebellious, transgressive, whatever the current cliches are. All those words are now retreads, basically. So the question I would, uh, the answer I would give you is I don't think this show will be remembered in 100 years. Uh, I don't think it'll be remembered in five years. Uh, and for the uh, simple reason that it does not, quote, challenge any horizon of expectations, so to say, that had been there. And in fact, it deals with every set of cliched expectations are around, from questioning authorship, the old French idea, deconstruction. So everything's out there, you know, archive uh, as a form, whatever you want to call it, there, is, there are no boundaries anymore, no conventions, no limits, uh, etc. It's a highly uh, what has been called permanent pluralistic situation, and it's a situation in which there is really no center of value, as it were. 
And the question is whether these, what are the values, whether you want to call it cultural values, art values, et cetera. So apart from signaling something that has happened at a certain time right now, and it signals that there are certain people that are of, say, broad historical relevance, part of what I would call the field of operations, which interests me more than any individual artist, so to say, um, that this show will not have any reverberations in the future, and it will not be able to be put together again. Okay, At the uh, Neue Gallery now, they've brought the what is left of the degenerate art show. Okay, Now, at a certain moment, that was a particularly important show. And it was more than just Munich. It traveled around Germany in general. Now you see it, and it's sort of like, um, I don't know, like an old movie or something. But it's you know, sort of extremely interesting, fascinating, historical. But we cannot get a hold of the kind of tensions that surrounded that show, uh, social tensions, aesthetic tensions, uh, political tensions, the meaning of that show at that time, uh, the fact that it, it in fact attracted more people in the public than the show that was put on the Haus der Kunst of sort of quasi-classical art or whatever you want to call uh, that kind of neo-academic uh, art. So I don't think that uh, many of these Whitney biannuals, frankly, will be, quote, reproducible in that way because they are of that special significance. But certain individual artists, depending upon what they continue to produce, and how they are picked up by institutions, you know, and celebrated, and also in the marketplace. Never forget that, because that has become the arbiter of values, whether you like it or not, right. in many quarters. And, and that is very hard to predict, very hard to predict. Question on the floor. Thank you, thank you. Can I just add but, uh, No, let's forget, this is the moment for the audience, that's the point. So please, uh, could you wait for the mic, please? Um, uh, we might point out also that in sheer practical terms, not much in that show is going to last in terms of conservation. Uh, I would hate to be the uh, conservator of new media, which MoMA has just hired. Um, interestingly enough, also you have technologies which will become obsolete, and this may, may make all kinds of videos and digital pieces disappear. Anything made out of bits of material will probably disappear. It, it just can't endure. The, 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 the underlying technical issues are all about um, uh, impermanence. But you, you said something else very important, the video. This will be on your app. It will be like uh, old issues of the New York Times or the Herald Tribune or the Journal American, which I still remember from my golden youth, and so forth. And it, it's all going to be part of an archive and you can call it up somewhere, but whether it will be installed again the way it's installed here is rather dubious. No, but Donald, the software will become obsolete, and unless you spend a lot of money um, migrating to the new software... That's true, like you, the old you movies. You won't have the app. It will, yeah. You won't be able to access it. Right. So it's all gone. As Goethe okay. said, alles well, vergänglich ist we're, we're, like we're here really to think about it right now, but... Uh, so if it's, if it's, it's frangibility, it should make us more urgently address what we think about it now. Yes, Robert Morgan. Uh, Professor Cuspid, it sounds like uh, you're suggesting that there's a whole series, a regimen of various exhibitions that would be classified more as symptomatic rather than significant. Is that what I understand? 
Well, yes, but, you know, a symptom is significant, you know. Um, the question is uh, what it symbolizes and what is hidden by it, what is disguised by conversion of it. But I have to say I uh, do subscribe to... I was thinking more of the object. Oh, the object. You're thinking of the object. Uh, a lot of these objects are symptomatic, yes, but that doesn't mean, quote, they aren't art, depending upon what you want to call art these days. In other words, the issue is, uh, you know, what the intrinsic value is, okay? Or you might, you might look at it another way. Uh, psychoanalysis began sort of with the study of hysteria, and uh, Charcot, uh, it was realized that the, a lot of these hysterical women were performing, they were taking cues from him their so-called somatization. So you might say a lot of these artists are, so to say, performing hysterics, taking cues from the society. And uh, so it's symptomatic in that sense. So what idea is au courant in the society? Well, uh, one of the curators of Puerto Rico is important. It wants to be statehood, okay? Hawaii, let's bring Hawaii in that far flung. I'm, I don't think there was anything from Alaska that was there. You know, so it becomes indeed symptomatic of some position, attitude, and then the question is why that position, what is that? Okay, thank you very much. Uh, yes, but please don't ask questions to individual panelists. Just give us your comments on what has been said so far. Nope. Thank you. Just ask questions. Well, all right, no. <laughs> All right, then I'll, I'll make it a, a statement. I haven't been to the show, but I did take a quick look online. And it seemed to me that a lot of the work was what I would, some of the work at least, documentary or, um, or political statement. But to pick up on Donald, Donald's point, not art. And, and I, if I would turn that into a question, maybe you can comment. Uh, let's take some, we'll take more, and that what we're going to do is absorb the comments and questions into our consideration of the fourth floor when we get to it. So do feel free to ask a question, but don't expect an answer. For the sake of argument, I think there are lots of memorable works in the show. Just for the sake of argument, it's the first Whitney Biennial that included a guy playing a video game for the whole length of the, the show. It's the first Whitney Biennial with a painting that was a giant painting disguised as a wall with other paintings hung on it. It's the first Whitney Biennial with abstract paintings done on LTV TV screens. It was the first Whitney Biennial with a giant sort of, what was that thing made out of colored thread? What was that, a, a spume, a waterfall out of thread? It's a fabric. I think that basically what I'm saying is that it's sort of hard, it's, it's sort of our job as viewers to look at the show and, and see things and, and have it mean something to us, you know? And, and, you know, it's easy to say, oh, well, this floor means this and this floor means that, and it's all boring and dumb, and it is, you know? But as a viewer, I'm not, I'm not willing to let it go at that, you know? I want something out of it if I'm going to go. There's 103 artists, you know? You have to take some looking. And I would tell the person who made the video to slow down a little bit and focus on some of the pieces. Yeah, thank you. That's, uh, those, that's well taken, all points. Good, good. Well, we'll have another chance after our discussion of the...
And in fairness of balance, this is what uh, Michel Grabner shares by way of curatorial statement. Although it may be far-reaching to think that a Whitney Biennial could be organized as a curriculum for other artists, aiming at pedagogy seemed a worthy ambition. Not because I'm an artist and teacher and a teacher, nor because I sought to create a democratic survey, but because I didn't want the frame that the viewer will look through to be a purely subjective take on contemporary American art. Instead, I developed a fourth floor curriculum that presents identifiable themes, generalities even, that are currently established in the textures of contemporary aesthetic, political, and economic realities. Within this curriculum, contours can be drawn around three overlapping priorities. Contemporary abstract painting by women, materiality and effect theory, affect theory, and art as strategy. In other words, conceptual practices oriented toward criticality. Theoretically, the works that I included will each demand from the viewer a varied network of analysis. Right. So this is the floor, isn't it, with the most tactility, the most um, engagement with form, with materials, processes, um, even though uh, one of Grabner's um, criteria um, is, as, as I just read, art as strategy, um, although it seems to me that is more prevalent um, in the curations of her um, male colleagues downstairs. This is the floor that seems to have the, the buzz from artists, at least in my circle, it may just be a reflection of um, who I hang out with, but I tend to be hearing the most positive noise about, oh, at least there's a fourth floor, at least you know, those who are having trouble with the biennial are finding uh, relief or satisfaction on the fourth floor. Um, is, that, um, is that a vibe that, despite, Don, I respect and uh, appreciate and admire uh, your resolute insistence on seeing the show as a package and, and your feeling of the homogeneity of it, but could you see how um, those positive vibes would attract the, uh, to the fourth floor? Yes, I, I find myself, uh, shall we say, drawn to more of that, perhaps because of my interest in painting. Um, and I like Nelson, I like a number of the other painters very much. But I want to say something about that in relation to what Walter said. Uh, yes, there are memorable things, but memory works in a, in a sort of different levels of memory. Some of these paintings uh, were memorable for me because they reminded me of other painting. That is, they brought back a certain history of painting, a certain tradition, and they seem to build on that, as it were. One can argue how they build or whatnot. Uh, I think then second level of memory would be whether certain individual works stand out and will, quote, have a lasting effect down the line, or say, so-called the, the, the duration for the duration of history in that sense. And I think some of them will uh, but I think it will have to do uh, with sensuous experience, the appeal, universal appeal of the haptic, of touch, sense of touch, power of color, etc. Now, the guy who did painted a wall like a wall, it's, it's, it's uh, I would say, memorable as an idea. It's what Mr. Greenberg used to call novelty art, okay, I would say. And it's as such memorable, but then I'm somehow going to forget 
the particularity of it and somehow remember the wall. So that's an issue. And to me, that is part of the issue of the exhibition as a whole, um, is uh, a lot of works uh, signaling, so to say, certain contexts of art or ideas of art uh, that we are uh, very familiar with. Uh, and then the question is how they carry them forward. And in whatever forward, we could argue what that means or whether we move from symptoms to significance. And I would say a number of the works on that floor do move, so to say, from symptom to significance, uh, even though they are also, quote, uh, symptomatic of a certain, so to say, art position, as it were, okay, like pa painting. And uh, I partly am drawn to them because I think the whole theory of the death of painting, painting mourning for itself, uh, is uh, really an effort of certain uh, self-styled art uh, authorities uh, to uh, determine the history of art and say what is legitimate or not. Uh, and it's just totally absurd. It's uh, a theory uh, which is beside the point of the practice, so to say. Okay, thank you. Um, Colleen, um, you described relief coming uh, after the, the third floor experience. Um, what was the quality and nature of the relief on, the, on this floor for you? Well, I think the reason a lot of artists have responded to that floor is it feels generous to the artists who are included. Um, the works feel like they have room. I mean, just, these, this is basic, but the, there's, there's room in which to see the works. Um, the, in almost every instance, I could kind of immediately understand why one work was placed in relationship to another and make connections there. I think Michelle's statement holds well in terms of it, it feeling very clear, um, the, the, the kind of three ideas that she was wanting to really focus on. Um, but more than anything, it was just that the, it, there was a generosity um, in the way that she organized the exhibition. And also, um, I mean, just things like that were totally formal amongst works, like placing the, the kind of the center space that there was so much color um, and so much tactility that actually, you know, one piece seemed to be responding formally to another in that way. So, um, yeah, it just, you know, it, it felt generous to the work. Um, Joseph, uh, Joe, I had um, many nice local sensations on, in, on, uh, in this floor, but um, I, I, was, I was struggling beyond the individual sensibility of the curator and, and, and a, uh, a striving for tactility to um, get aesthetic bearings, I, I have to confess, on the third floor. I've, I've actually found, although there were per wall more makers on the fourth floor that I um, liked, that actually the um, curation seemed more cohesive on the second and third floor. Um, would you say, I, one point that I liked, though, was that energy of triangle that was uh, generated with um, Donna Nelson's um, kind of diptych coming out of the wall at diagonals. It made a literal triangle because if you followed uh, one, it took you to Louise Fishman, and if you took the other, it took you to Sheila Hicks. And this one does a, a sort of matriarchal triangle of these maturer, fabric oriented, um, even with Fishman, the painter, the, the painterliness and the weave of the canvas being so evident seem to be a kind of 
feminine, older matrix. Um, but is that a sound way to go? Is that, you, you, is that, is that, is that good sexual politics in, in 2014? Is that, is that what we need and want for a curatorial direction? A kind of, a little bit of a kind of tactile essentialism? Or is it actually, if we kind of go beyond our relief that, oh, finally, some older artists, some artists working in marginalized mediums like fabric, more women, all very good things, yes, but are the politics actually that good in that triangle? Um, I'm not sure I understand the question completely. I think the fourth floor is the painting floor. It's also the women floor. You know, I, I would say somewhere between 60 and 80% of the women artists in the show and of the paintings in the show were all on that floor. Um, I don't know that that particular sort of formalist curating that you're describing, it's nothing that I especially noticed. And I don't know that we can impute a kind of political agenda to that triangulation. Um, I don't know that the quality of the works on that floor was very consistent. You know, there was a lot of abstract painting by women. Some of it I thought was important to see. Some of it I thought was not. Um, one of the, I think the Zoe Leonard piece, which has been mentioned already, even though it's technically in Anthony Elms' section, reads as if it's part of Michelle's floor. I think that's a very interesting piece to think about, not in terms of politics so much as in terms of this idea of what we're going to remember. I think Colleen is absolutely right in pointing out that that was one of the finest moments in the show. You know, you walk into that room and you're suddenly in a quiet place after the very sort of visually loud painting and ceramic room. You're finally away from that Charlemagne Palestine noise. Also that. Um, it becomes this very beautiful piece in terms of the building and its history and its future. It becomes a very humanist piece, I think, in terms of its focus on street life just outside the museum. Um, I liked it for so many reasons. I think there's a kind of visceral pleasure you get from being in that room. But how will we remember that work of art? You know, it is only a camera obscura. If it's not in that exact spot, in that exact building, it's a completely different work of art. Um, is there any way that that's a work of art that will survive longer than this biennial, or even its memory? Well, the, the, Met, the Met that's taking over the building could acquire the Zoe Leonard and keep it there forever, but... Um... Don. I just want to say something about uh, the matriarchal corner, as you called it. I think uh, it's a very interesting thought you have, and uh, it brings me uh, back to the 70s when there was this debate, and I remember uh, Lucy Lepard was intensely involved with it. Is there such a thing as a male painting or a male style, a feminine style? And this went on and on. And I remember when pattern painting came out, as it was called, uh, everybody said, you know, it was a female style, and then arts had an issue, and on the cover was Lucas Samaras' uh, pattern work. So uh, it's a very interesting issue to revive that. 
But let's take seriously the affect theory idea. Uh, a key figure that is sort of being revived in art schools, in any case, at least from people I know, because Sylvan Tompkins, who is a big theorist of uh, sort of uh, within the Darwinian tradition. Darwin wrote a famous essay on, uh, on affect, arguing there were eight, eight basic expressions. It's now to about 16. And Tompkins did this. And each expression instantly communicated, OK, uh, and it communicated both sensuously and affectively. So what you have here, I think, is an effort, as I would see it, independent of the male style, female style uh, issue, a return to sort of primary sensuous affective experience is what seems to be going on, to try to use art as a vehicle to convey that, which is, of course, a very familiar idea of art, at least in the modernist period. Um, you, can, you can track it back to fauvism even before that. And uh, I find that extremely interesting. And uh, the reason I find it interesting is, it's, as I see it, uh, and this is not some any final interpretation, a kind of rebellion against the post-art kind of thing that Capro talked about, that art has nothing special to offer. You may recall that Capro gave a list of things in the public. He said, uh, for example, that the gas station stru structures that no architect could build anything as basic, as interesting as that. He said the static coming from satellites uh, in transmissions uh, was more interesting than modernist music and so forth. So they're saying, well, this thing that we do as painters or as artists still can mediate a certain kind of experience which you can't quite get in, let's say, a relatively, quote, to use that old word, pure form or straightforward form. So I would argue there's a kind of ontology of affect and sense experience, sensuousness going on in those works, whether this work is better than that work or something else. But the general trend, as I see it, or tendency, I think is a better word, strikes me as extremely interesting, independently of whether these artists are women or not, whatever the official thing. And I think that's one of the things that painting has been about. Uh, you know, it's one of the, one of the traditional things that quote, pure painting, so to say, has been about. You can go back to Fry on that, uh, the mediation of so-called aesthetic emotion or said emotion directly, he said, without any practical purpose. And I'm just wondering if that's what's happening. I'm just throwing that out yeah. as an idea yeah, in that art. Let's take that idea, Don, and yeah. play with it, because I, I think it's something that we, we should address. Uh, uh, Colleen, does that resonate with you? Does, uh, how, how would you go about um, placing in, a, in any kind of theoretical way or in any kind of, to ascribe meaning to uh, Michelle Grabner's notions of affect and, and what she presents to us of uh, tactile relationship to, to materials. Um, I'm gonna continue the trend and disobey the question and just return to, to your previous one about, because oh, I thought that was, an, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, just oh, since I didn't get to weigh in on that. Um, I, which, which is just to say that um, it seems to me pretty obviously absurd to make a claim that uh, you know there's some essential connection between you know people with vaginas and abstraction or people with vaginas and anything. Um, and yet, I think it's really useful to uh, to look at what sort of position uh, someone who identifies as a woman um, might be in in the present 
uh, who is you know, of a certain generation, of a certain geography, and, um, and also identifies as an abstract painter. I think that's a really useful thing to do. And I, I just I feel it's really important to make that distinction. Um, I, you know, there was an art historian, Aruna D'Souza, who, who gave a, um, a talk recently uh, called Propositions for a Feminist Forum, where she was looking at how um, you know, we associate um, feminism in an art context with having a, um, an explicit socio-political uh, content, um, but what happens when we try and look at feminism as a, a formal strategy? Um, you know, and, and again, to make any link between someone of a certain gender and um, you know, an innate kind of formal strategy doesn't seem useful to me, but what um, might someone arrive at who's positioned in the culture in a certain way? Uh, and that the, the work that um, Michelle has gathered together um, you know, of artists like Louise Fishman or Sheila Hicks, uh, Jacqueline Humphreys, that it has a certain relationship to uh, more canonical abstraction and yet is interested in um, you know, a certain uh, tactility which is intimate and immediate. Um, you know, that seems like a, a really useful way to, to think about how that work might be positioned in relationship to the gender of the artist. What about the essentially conservative nature of, say, Louise Fishman's painting. It seems, I mean, I, I admire her um, and I enjoy her, uh, but um, her sensibility is very abex. It, it, she's, she could come, she could have made those paintings in the 50s, actually. I don't, I don't see formally or technically why they couldn't have been made in, in the 1950s, just as one more voice of um, a de Kooning or Guston or um, um, thinking of a particular name of an artist has gone out of my mind right now. Come to, um, but anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, or Resnick or whoever. Um, but are they being put... I mean, if, if the Louise Fishmans, to take Colleen Asper um, at a word and say the vagina doesn't matter, so if they were by, uh, if they were by Larry Fishman... Um, you, I'm sure the vagina matters. We all love, yeah, yes. But uh, say, say, say Louise Fishman was Larry Fishman. Would, would they would they work, or would you say why why'd she put Larry Fishman in? He he's just another sort of late abexer, isn't he? I mean, why? So what is the resonance of Fishman? Is it is it a veteran, good, solid female abstract painter who's been kind of marginalised is only now getting her uh, her place in the sun thanks to whatever, or is it this actual painting? with its form, with its structure, with its energy, with its strategy, is important here. David, Joseph. I would just say one thing to you, that uh, I think the distinction between conservative and advanced is dead now. Uh, I don't, you know, you can, you can relate it to ABEX if you want, but you go tell me then what is advanced uh, if you want to point to other things. So she's working in a certain tradition, okay? Uh, there are all kinds of traditions there. Um, the tradition is not defunct because somebody's working in it. And then you can relate it to that tradition, you know, whether it's Larry or whomever, okay? Uh, so that strikes me as the issue. Also, what I think she or he uh, is doing and what these artists are trying to do is return to a certain kind of uh, fundamental sensuous affective experience, which is universal, basically. Uh, I don't know if women have more access to it. I doubt that very much. 
but uh, I think that's there. Also, one other thing, though, it may well be in terms of, from what I've read of the studies of the difference between male and female brain, that in fact there is some sort of difference in sensibility that's going on there that may be operational. One can see, say, a different kind of rhythm, say, in a Pollock or a de Kooning than in this kind of painting. Okay, I would argue that on, on that I, level. I, I accept all those points, actually, that I certainly, it's a corrective that I should be, it's, it's ironic that I should call it conservative because I've all my career been advocating, um, you know, against notions of false notions of the avant-garde. But, um, but it's, it, it's not that it's conservative, it's just that it, I mean, because everything is kind of, I don't believe that everything has been done, but uh, most uh, ways of making abstract paintings have begun to be explored at some moment or another. I mean, in a way you could say Dan Walsh is no less 70s than Fishman is 50s. And why is this, the 70s is no more advanced than the 50s? That, that I can see the logic there, and I, I, uh, I, I welcome and applaud the correction. But, but still, I'm gonna stick with it and say, these do feel like they're definitely within, a, these, are, these are traditional paintings. That's what I would say. Not conservative, but traditional. And I, so I accept, and uh, I accept and, and thank Don for the correction. I take back conservative and put in traditional. Um, would, you, would you reject the, the notion that Louise Fishman is traditional and, and therefore uh, Joseph, and, then, and therefore um, defend her inclusion here? Well, I think that the return of abstract expressionism is actually one of the things that defines the zeitgeist. Um, I don't know that those are the best Louise Fishmans I've ever seen in my life or the best Amy Silmans. Um, but I do think that the curator, Michelle Grabner, on that floor did point at the fact that abstract expressionism is back. And I respect that she chose to illustrate that point not by sort of displaying the white men who are dominating the market for it, but rather this group of mostly older women artists who do fine in the market, don't get me wrong about that, but who actually seem to be doing far more interesting things than some of the artists who are more successful in the marketplace. Um, I think many of the figures she chose for that would be the same ones that I would have chosen, um, not necessarily the same examples. But I think you do raise a very interesting point about the kind of specificity of objects. And the Louise Fishmans, for example, of being chosen for their illustration of the genre rather than for the urgency of that particular specific object. Um, having just heard this idea from you, I'm not sure exactly what to think about it, but I think that's a very interesting question for not only for tonight, but for this historical moment, right. um, when other kinds of abstract expressionist painting is basically being traded like stocks or baseball cards. Mm -hmm. um, and the kind of specificity of object that once was associated with <laughs> art in general and with that genre of painting in particular seems to have evaporated. Um, we've 
I'm looking through the list and thinking, wow, we didn't talk about him, her, him, her, him, her. Uh, we've had a pretty rich discussion, and I feel a, quite a bit of twitching in the audience, and that there's, the discussion needs to continue a little longer. We did start 10 minutes later than scheduled, and so if you, if you don't mind, we will keep going for another 10 minutes. Um, um, I, therefore, welcome some more comments from the floor, and then we'll wrap it up on the panel here. Uh, any, any, yes. Uh. I was sort of wondering if the panel would discuss um, <clears throat> if they thought that what, what good is the Whitney Biennial? Like, what purpose does it serve? I, I actually was looking through an old catalog, I don't know, 10 years or 12 year old biennial catalog and noticed that there were a lot of good artists in it and a lot of ones that I never heard of again, but my feeling is actually it's good enough. It, it does the job, you know. It, we kind of talk about it, it's a record, maybe it's a blurry snapshot, but um, what do you guys think? Do you think it's good enough? I think that's gonna be a brilliant last question, Jay Grimm, and I thank you for it. And, but I'm gonna wait and ask it when we've heard some more comments from the floor about um, Michelle Grabner's curation and the things that we've said on the panel, uh, confronting essentialism, um, tradition, etc., and tactility and affect. So we had a pretty, uh, I was particularly pleased, I, I shouldn't pat my panelists on the back, but particularly pleased by everyone's, the, the, the level of conversation we really achieved in that um, last segment. So I'd, I'd like to see it continue on the floor, yes. But questions aren't so useful at this stage because we don't have time to answer them. Now, I guess my question is, whether it has to be newish and far outish to be good, or if you could take artists like um, Dan Walsh or um, uh, John Mason's wall of ceramic tiles or Channa Horowitz's amazing conceptual drawings. If, I mean, what, what do people feel about those very aesthetically pleasing objects as well as? Yeah, I, I, thank you, thank you, Joan. Uh, one of my writers at artcritical.com. Uh, Joan Boykoff Baron, and I, I feel, Joan, we've, we've all been teasing precisely that issue, so I, but it's good to, good to nail it that way. Yes, uh, do you want to still want to speak? No. Uh, no, no, you don't have to. I just, just Jen, Jen Riley. Um, I'm not against conceptual art at all. In fact, a lot of my good friends are conceptual artists. Um, are they Jewish conceptual artists? <laughs> I happen to like painting. And one of the reasons I like painting, I love painting, I'm a painter and a writer, is that um, I have, in front of a painting, I ha I'm one person having a very private experience. I make individual discoveries, I make private discoveries. The, um, the reaching back through history, um, bringing traditional aspects of painting forward keeps the historical fresh, and I think that's why a lot of people are, you know, if, if there's a zeitgeist for Abex right now, maybe that's probably a good reason. Um, that's my comment. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Yes, gentlemen here. Do wait for the mic, please. I'm curious to consider the generational point of view from now into art history, and some of you have mentioned abstract painting in the 50s and 70s, and there are those in the audience and on the panel 
today who remember a lot of those paintings uh, when they happened. And there are others of us who don't. And I'm very curious about thinking about the difference between the understanding of the gap between the generational understanding of the aesthetics, specifically towards abstract expressionism. Yeah. Thank you, because the, it, it was a stated aim that was certainly achieved by Grabner to uh, focus on mature uh, women artists um, as, as one of her categories. Yeah. Uh, more comments? Um, yes, sir? There was a, a discussion within the panel earlier this evening about having a, having a, a, a curator who was also an artist. Uh, and in this case, on, on the fourth floor, uh, it, it felt like what the curator was, was doing in, in, in having uh, these abstract paintings was making an argument in support of painting and support of abstraction and contrasting that with a lot of the more contemporary forms of art that appeared to some degree on that floor, but to a much greater degree on some of the other floors, and perhaps asking uh, the audience to make a judgment as to the value of the different forms of art. And, and to the extent that she was doing that and making an argument in support of painting and in support of abstraction, I found that to be a very compelling argument. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's, it's great to hear a conclusion about that from coming out of <coughs> what had been an earlier debate. So that uh, gives, gives some cogency to our proceedings this evening. Thank you very much. Unless somebody else is bursting, I'd like to... Well, yes, back of the back row. I just need to reference Colleen's um, statement of the, about the presence or absence of vagina. It was very interesting to see the transgendered artist's work, the young lady who turned the camera, the still camera, and the film camera on herself. And I was, I was torn between the use of the medium, but the actual message that was being given. The use of the medium itself was very uh, weak and kind of shabby. The subject matter itself for me was just so fascinating as a painter. I'm just curious to know if, the, um, if anybody has, has anything to say about that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I was going to, in fact, even, I was, you know, sometimes questions come to me and I think, oh, that could be a provocative question. And another little voice within me says, that's actually a politically miserable question, and you will finally be revealed as the awful bigot you are and driven from this fair city. And so usually those questions are asked, but in a polite English accent, so it doesn't sound too bad. But um, if this was... So two last questions for our panel, and then we'll all go home. Um, question number two will be Jay Grimm's question. Uh, what's the point of biennials? Question number one, uh, those of you or us uh, who uh, are distressed by the uh, um, lack of um, 
non-white, non-male artists. Um, is it a, a palliative to them, to us, that without it being in some way the gay biennial in the way that, or the transgender biennial in the way that, say, the, the, the exhibition at the Whitney, you know, the black male artist some years ago, was very uh, stridently um, focused and political. Um, and without being to call people out as, and putting them in a pigeonhole of being gay or lesbian artists, it did seem to me that um, gayness was a permeating feature on all three floors, um, whether it was that, I can't remember the name of the artist, please, the room that one goes into, uh, and with the bean bags on the floor and the... <laughs> yes, say the name again. John Melgard, or whether it's uh, Amy Steiner's um, salon hang of, of photographs, or whether it's uh, the number of women artists um, uh, or, or, or artists of any gender that um, uh, among uh, Grabner's uh, uh, roster. I mean, is this, uh, I don't know if, if it's legitimate or not, but did it feel to the panel at all that there was some celebration of gayness in this biennial? that was noticeable. Joseph? Um, I think you're right in noting that, if anything, this may be the most queer biennial in memory. Um, what struck me about it was that so much of the queer work is so essentially conservative, which I think, like abstract expressionism, is absolutely a marker of our moment. Um, Keith Mayerson's installation, for example, was about his happy domestic life with his husband. Um, Paul P's work is about this kind of longing for a past when homosexuality was hidden and radical. Um, something like Julie Alt's room of archival material had works of art from the, the AIDS crisis as these kind of mementos of a time of former political action. Um, the transgender artists who are documenting their own lives, um, those were sort of absolutely conservative photographs um, of this couple in a fairly domestic setting. Um, I feel like that was a really interesting thing that happened there. I would think that the only kind of slightly more radical moment and one of the very few political moments in that entire show was A.L. Steiner's installation, which was a kind of wonderfully odd conflation of lesbianism and environmental activism. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that really stood out because it was one of the very few, if not the only, political moment in that whole show. The very sort of visibility of queer life and transgendered bodies is just such a commonplace now that it no longer carries the political meaning that it once did. Colleen, yeah. uh, Dom, would either of you like to come in on this issue? Yeah, I, I want to tremendously agree with um, what Joseph just said um, and add to that that, I mean, if the archive is a form that needs to be rethought, if painting is a form that needs to be rethought, gender is as well. So that there would be a, um, a very visible trans presence or queer presence is great, but you have to ask not just the question of whether or not 
artists who identify as queer, artists who identify as trans are being included on the panel, but what might a queer position be in a work, which is a, a separate question altogether. And, um, you know, a queer position, I think, in a work would be one that would seek out some kind of unnameability, um, which the, the works for the large part made by artists who identify as queer didn't, um, didn't present to me. Um, I mean, even I, I you know, agree that there was a, a little bit of um, kind of heat to A.L. Steiner's presentation, but then the, um, the, the photographs on the wall, which is a strategy um, that I've seen her employ uh, before, to me feels way too much like a, you know, this is a collection of my cool friends doing cool stuff, and I, it looks great to me, and I want to hang out with them, but... Um, but I don't know how uh, radical of a strategy that feels to me. So, okay. yeah. yeah. Well, just very simple. I, I think uh, with the uh, general acceptance increasingly uh, throughout the country of gay marriage, the fact that for the younger generation, according to statistics I've read, gayness is not a particular issue, uh, nor are any of the other things that used to be regarded as, as outsider or outre. And there have been discussions of <clears throat> the bourgeoisification of homosexuality uh, and uh, of outsiderness. So I would say what all this shows uh, is uh, really it doesn't matter whether the artist is gay or not, in a sense. It's, it's about what is being presented there, what is being articulated, discussed. So uh, whether you know that some artist is gay or lesbian or transgender seems to be increasingly beside the point. Uh, although, no doubt, for certain people, it's an important point. I don't particularly think it's an important point, except if you want to analyze iconography or something of that sort. Right. Thank you. Yeah. And so, um, the, final, the final question, then, that Jay Grimm uh, articulated, and I'm going to slightly repackage so that we can answer it with brevity, and which is, uh, please, one sentence, not a Proustian sentence, uh, your advice to Mr. Weinberg as he takes the uh, Whitney Museum of American Art to its new home in the Meatpacking District. Um, keep the biennial, change the biennial, ditch the biennial. Joseph Wolin. Uh, one sentence? <laughs> one sentence. Or How many commas am I allowed? Uh, answer it. If you go on too long, I'll let you know. All right. Um, I think the Whitney Biennial suffers from the same problem that all other biennials do. And the question of it being a memorable show, I think, is fairly moot. I mean, how many actual biennials can we recall? I've probably seen, I don't know, more than a dozen, and I can recall maybe one or two biennials. And not just the Whitney, but around the world. On the other hand, this is a vehicle that gets people in the door looking at contemporary art. The place was packed every time I've been. Um, that alone is certainly worth something. So, I mean, if we're going to have a biennial in New York, why not this one? Okay, thank you. Don Cuspit, um, taking that point. Okay. So we, we've, uh, in, in, in very as succinctly as Joe, please, um, who is the biennial for, and is it, can it really work? Um, well, I think uh, the biennial is a sporting event. Um, I think uh, looking at art has become a spectator sport. Uh, it's not as big as going to a football stadium, but maybe the new Whitney will be that. 
and so it draws in crowds. Uh, it's uh, part of uh, the culture to go see uh, things that are interesting, novel, and different. But my own sense is that the Whitney Biannual uh, has no purpose anymore, that the place where you can see more art is actually these huge exhibitions, which Colin was bothered by, but I find them terrific opportunities for seeing everything if you just stay focused and see what's going on. So I, I would say you actually can see the art better in individual booths at fairs than you can in the biennial. I find the biennial was sort of cluttered, hard to see things. And I myself think a lot of these artists would look better in galleries, so to say, maybe two or three together in some group of work than spread out over this whole space. So I think it's an obsolete kind of thing. And I think the fairs have taken over the job of showing us the extraordinary range of art around, for better or for worse. Thank you very much. In fact, I was going to then ask myself, and I was going to give exactly that reply. So uh, Don and I are in complete agreement. The uh, art fair phenomenon and the festivalism that uh, doesn't look like it's going away uh, makes kind of obsolete what was once a pioneering feature of the Whitney to present in survey uh, the temperature of what's going on and what we need from Museums like the Whitney are extremely uh, focused uh, thematic exhibitions that have a very specific question and make a point of answering it. That's what my advice would be. Colleen? Uh, I mean, I would strongly disagree that the, um, that the biennial or any curated group exhibition could be replaced by an art fair. I think everything that we said about Michelle's floor in particular could not be less true of an art fair, which is the least generous context to artists I can think of. Um, that said, I'm, I'm all for really radically rethinking the form of the biennial. The catalog um, that accompanied the exhibition had a very brief history of the biennial at the beginning, which was much of which was um, new to me. Um, so, you know, just for example, it, it described how the, the um, the first you know, many decades of biennials, the curators weren't, weren't even named, um, and how different that is than the sort of curator as kind of superstar of the present. So I guess just acknowledging the fact that the, the history of the biennial itself has not been stable uh, is a great uh, you know, point of departure for opening up in the future how it could be really radically rethought. Excellent. It just remains for me to both thank our panel and alert you to some news, which is the lineup of our next, in fact, the final panel of the ninth season, which takes place on May the 2nd, when Stephanie Booman, Mario Navs, Navis, and Saul Estro are my guests. And the exhibitions we're going to discuss are David Mizell, uh, History's Shadow at Yancey Richardson, John Newman, Fit at Tibor Denage, Jackie Sacochi at 11 Rivington, and Alan Wexler, Breaking Ground at Ronald Feldman Fine Art. All those details and the podcast of tonight's and all prior review panels can be found at artcritical.com. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you.